service on a Sunday afternoon when, when the rain is coming down, so I do not blame you. So, but we are grateful to be back in the house of the Lord. We're grateful for everyone um, who is here today. So, as you know, we are continuing through the book of Acts as we have been doing over the past year and a half now, almost two years, and we're coming close to a close here. And, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited because we're seeing more and more of God's goodness and the favor of God as we go through these, these books of the Bible. So we're all the way up to Acts chapter 23 and 24. So um, as opposed to starting with an introduction, I want to actually pick right back up from where we left off just to give us some of the context about what happened last week, what was happening with Paul, just so we can understand what it means for his life, but also understanding what the providence and the sovereignty of God even means for our lives. So we're picking up from Acts chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 23, where we left off last week. We're picking up in Acts chapter 23, where we left off in verse 23. So it says, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews And he was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him um, by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned him to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered to the, to the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, if you recall, um, when we initially began studying the book of Acts, I mentioned that now, if you open up your Bible, it may say something like the Acts of the Apostles. And there have been some arguments over time exactly whose Acts these are. And if you remember in the beginning, I said these are not the Acts of the Apostles. These are the Acts of God through the Holy Spirit. That everything we see was God providentially working in his establishment of the New Testament church. And he was controlling everything that happened because he is sovereign in that way. And that he was using the third person of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish his purpose. And we saw that quite evidently last week when we saw that there was a mob that was going to kill Paul. They were planning to ambush him so much so that they actually taken a vow and said, we're not going to eat anything until we kill him. And providentially in God's sovereignty and goodness, he allowed a person that we had not heard of until that point, Paul's nephew, to hear of this encounter, and he prevents that from happening by alerting the tribune in what we saw he wrote to Felix the governor. 
And so it's made clear to us all throughout this time, especially as we're getting to the end of this book, that God was shaping and controlling everything that was happening for ultimately the good of those who are involved, but also his glory. God planned accordingly because he is, in fact, working from a divine plan. And so in some ways, this sermon this week is a bit of a continuation of the sermon last week. But I do want you to see that as Paul lives, God is slowly putting together the picture of what his life would be. I want you to see this as God showing what was required of him and that at every turn, at every obstacle, at every ditch, at every downfall, that God was actually ordaining everything that happened in Paul's life as an opportunity for him to share the gospel. Each turn was a chance that God would allow Paul to bring glory to him before what we're going to see today in the next few weeks over great men. Now, he was doing that so that he would be glorified. Now, in every step, what God exactly was doing in the fulfillment of Paul's life was actually not made clear to Paul, was it? Paul was not able to see all the ways that God was really orchestrating his life according to this divine plan. In fact, we're going to see that as all of these pieces of the puzzle are forming, it's forming an image that Paul is not able to see right away. As each little piece is placed in this puzzle, Paul doesn't know what the conclusion of that image will be. And so what we see in our text is a continuation of what we saw. After hearing from Paul's nephew of the things that these men were plotting against Paul, the tribune wants to now, he wants to get Paul out of the area as quickly as he can. And so he needs to transport him to get him to Felix, who's the governor over the area, in order to make sure that Paul can have someone hear his case. Now, if you notice, it says that he gets all of these men and before they go to Caesarea, all these men, you got horsemen, you have spearmen, and they're going to all go and they're going to deliver Paul to Caesarea. Now, the reason that is, is because they're traveling about a 60 mile journey at 9 p.m. at night. And he's doing this because he knows there are people who have a bounty on Paul's head. And so what he's trying to do is ensure that those people don't kill Paul before he gets to Felix the governor. So the tribune sends a letter to Felix attempting to explain exactly what was happening. And so here we see that this tribune is actually Claudius Lysias. Now, once he gets there, Paul is put in prison. And Felix explains that once his accusers arrive, once those men of the Jews come down, then they're going to give him a trial. Now, just to give you some context on who Felix is, this Felix man is not someone that you necessarily wanted to appeal to. Wanted to show himself strong. Some years prior, Felix had actually killed some religious zealots who had been in the area, some Jewish religious zealots. And they dealt, he dealt with them violently. And so what the Jews are attempting to do here is to convince Felix that Paul is nothing but just another religious zealot, which he wasn't. But he knew they knew what he had done with the other men before him. And so they're hoping in turn that Felix would do for them what they don't have to do themselves, which is ultimately kill Paul. Now, as believers, if our lives are taking us before 
and unfavorable people in unfavorable places and into uncertain circumstances, then we have to trust and believe that our steps are ordered by God. You have to know that. Now, what is our basis for that belief? Why do we believe that everything that happens to us is ordered and orchestrated by God? Well, the first thing that we can see is that all of the evidence in the Bible actually points to that fact that all of course of human history has been divinely orchestrated sovereignly by God. Look, if you go back and you look in the Bible, you remember when Daniel refused to bow at the image, he was thrown into the den of the lion so that he would be devoured. In the moment that he makes his decision to stand with and for God, he knows that there is a very strong likelihood that he's going to die. Yet he's willing to stand for God anyway, knowing that his stance for God may actually lead to death. What about with the three Hebrew boys who know their defiance could lead to death as well? Yet they stand before and they say, we will not bow to the image, Nebuchadnezzar, and God is able to deliver us. Though he may not, we know that he is able to. And he does. Paul says earlier, before going to Jerusalem, he actually knew that dangers awaited him in Jerusalem, such like this ambush, such like being delivered to Felix and then Herod and then eventually Caesar. He says, I know that dangers await me in Jerusalem. But he goes anyway. What could cause anyone to be willing to go anywhere, either not knowing the outcome or knowing that the outcome could potentially lead their death? What could drive a person to live their life that way where they can mitigate the risk involved and still do whatever they feel like they're called to do? Look at what Job says. Job offers us a bit of an explanation for that. Look at Job 23 and 10. Look at Job 23 and 10. He gives us the explanation for it. In the first verse here, he says, but he knows the way that I take. He knows the way that I take. But look at the very next verse. And when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will completely complete what he appoints for me. And many such things are in his mind. Therefore... I'm terrified at his presence. When I consider, I'm in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty, the Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. There's a lot of truth that Job packs here. There's a lot of theology that Job packs here that we need to understand if we're going to have an understanding about our lives in relationship to God. The reason he is able to walk in the path is that even though he doesn't know where he is going, he says, but God knows the way that I take. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what the end result of my life will be. 
I have no clue the course of my life and the ways that God is directing me where I'm going. But he says, regardless of that, God knows the way that I take. Now, when some of us hear this, we may think, yeah, that's easier said than done. But we do it all the time. Do you know we go places all the time and we don't know where we're going? You don't believe me? Think about it. We have all traveled somewhere by car and we had no clue where we were actually going, did we? We know what the destination is intended to be, but we don't have the directions. Whether it is a in-state travel or out-of-state travel, we do it. In fact, just, you know, two weeks ago, I drove my whole family 300 miles. I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea where I was going, and yet I got in the car with my whole family with the full confidence that I would arrive at my desired destination. Now, how was that? How did I do that? I had a GPS. I had a GPS. I had something that was directing me. Why do I have a GPS? Because I don't know where I'm going. If I knew where I was going, I wouldn't use a GPS, would I? Why do I use it specifically? Because it does know where I'm going. It knows the way that I take. Now, every one of us has used a GPS, and I tend to put mine on get me there as quick as possible, okay? Because y'all know I'm a little impatient. Now, the problem when you put it on get me there as quick as possible is it's going to get you there as quick as possible, you're going to drive through some winding roads, some turning roads. You're going to see some dust, some cows. You're going to see some forests. You're going to get there, but there's a lot of darkness. There are a lot of obstacles. And I don't know about you, but eventually we realize or we start to think that this winding road means this thing ain't got no clue where it's taking me. I done trusted this thing in my life, and here I am going down this winding road. It's quick. I can't see nothing. I think I saw a wolf. Like, you, you start going down these winding roads. You hitting potholes. You thinking this thing has gotten me lost. And then eventually you realize, oh, no, it was getting me where I needed to go. You start to realize that every winding road, every dark path, every bump was necessary in order for you to get to the desired destination. Now, there are some differences, though. You know, this thing is fallible. It miscalculates. It would actually even try to avoid some of those obstacles. It will try to avoid some of that traffic. But that isn't how God works. Look what God, look what Job says here regarding God. He says that though God knows the way that he uses the paths that he takes me on to purify me and sanctify me. What does that mean? He says, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. When God has drugged me through these paths, when I have all of these things, all of this sin that is still attached to me, some of that bumpiness, some of that roughness that I'm having to go through is God actually purifying me. He's smoothing out the rough edges of my life and he's taking out the sin that maybe I don't even know is there. And he's conforming me to his image. That's what he's doing. He says he's trying him. But then he says, regardless, regardless of that, that his foot has held fast to his steps and that he has kept his way. Look at this. Why is it important to go the way 
that God is directing us. He says because he is unchangeable and that God can actually do whatever he desires. Look, Job says that because God can appoint his way and because God will complete what he appoints, then he says that actually makes me terrified of God. There are some of us who are terrified of the journey when we actually should be terrified of God, the one who is in control of the journey in the first place. Job says some of us are terrified of the path. I'm actually terrified if I try to deviate from this path. Because what does the Bible say about the, the wide path, the path that everybody else is on? It says that that wide path, everybody finds it. Everybody's going on that path. But it's the path that actually leads to destruction. It's the path of least resistance, but it's the path that leads to destruction. But Jesus says, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And there are few who are on it and few who find it. And it is a way, it is a path that is filled with obstacles, filled with challenges, filled with sanctification, filled with purification, filled with death and loss and grief and sickness and pain. But at the end of that road is glory. That's it. He says, so I don't fear the path ahead of me, but I do fear the path of the man of God whose wrath I would have to endure if I try to get off of it. So I'm not afraid of what the uncertainty may look or feel like because God goes ahead of me. He knows. As we were told in Psalm 37, 23, you don't have to go there, but it says that the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. That is important because there are all kind of people who say, well, you know, this is just a part of my journey and God is taking me through something. You may be going through something because of your own sin and unrighteousness. You may be on a path that does not lead you to eternity. It says, but our ways, our steps, every way that I go, every path I take, every right turn, every left turn, every time I go straight. It is all appointed in my life and in your life. If you are a believer, it is appointed to you by God. God is only ordering your steps when you delight in him. That's why Proverbs says that if you lean on him and trust in him and not your own understanding, what will he do? He will direct your path. Let's pick back up in Acts 24 and 1. It's a continuation. It says, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with elders and and a spokesman, one to Tullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tullius began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, Reforms are being made for this nation in every way and in everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. It's really pandering here. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Lie. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And says the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all the things were so. Now, Paul is left in prison here. 
And while he awaits for the leaders to come down and when they do, they start to lavish Felix with praise, which would have been a custom because you go before a governor like this. You do not want to die. But specifically, you want him to hear your case and rule in favor of you. And so that's where their lives start. And they come furiously and they come incredibly inflated. And I bet you at some point, Paul is feeling and thinking, if you're looking, you know, you're looking up to God and you're like, God, is this really where you've taken me? Is this a path that you've taken me? We're going to see. Yeah, he's there for a few days, but he's actually going to end up staying in prison for two years. And then there's going to be a governor who replaces Felix. And I know he's probably thinking as he's sitting in that prison, by the way, those Roman prisons were designed where the sewer passed right behind where they were. So not only are you in prison, but you're smelling all the filth of Rome as you do it. So God, is this really where you've taken me? I think every single one of us in our desire to get to the, the destination that God's appointed for us has wondered, not in those mountains, but in those valleys. God, is this really where you've taken me? But one of the things that we do have to realize is that the Bible makes us no promise that our path to eternity will have smooth sailing. I remember when I first got to Sanford, and I really, really felt like the Lord had led me there. I mean, I really felt like the Lord had orchestrated and and divinely appointed for me to be at Sanford at that time. And then after the first semester, I started thinking, now, Lord, maybe that was me. Maybe that wasn't really you. I really questioned whether or not God had actually directed me there. And mainly the reason I questioned it is because it was hard. Like, really, really hard. So hard that I was on academic probation. And I ain't never been on no kind of academic nothing other than the honor roll in my life. And I'm like, Lord. This got to be a problem. I felt like I was going to fail. And I really thought that because of that, that was the evidence that I made the wrong decision. But what actually happened is that that journey, that path that God was showing me himself, he was showing me his faithfulness. And if I had not been on that path, if I had not endured that, if I had not gone through that difficulty, faced that uncertainty, then so much of who God has sanctified me and conformed me to be would not exist. God's wisdom, as far as I can see, is so much further than my wisdom. Why had God ordered Paul's steps this way? It's the last scripture. Acts 24 and 10. He says, and when the governor had nodded at Paul to speak, Paul replied. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, 
which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation. Should they have anything against me? Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. Paul takes this series of unfortunate happenings, these steps that God had ordered, and he makes this all an opportunity for him to share the gospel, to tell the truth of who God was, to tell the truth in front of a man that he knew that if this man deemed that he actually was a part of a sect, that he would have had him beheaded. You know, the interesting thing about Paul's life is when you read 2 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, I would advise you to read it if you've never read it. When you read Paul's, you know, that's an autobiography of himself. And he says, you know, the one thing that confirmed for me early on in my journey that I was on the right path is that all the things I had to endure. He said I had to be beat. I was stoned. I was whipped. I was shipwrecked. I was bitten by a snake. I was lied on. I was in danger among Christians. I was in danger among the Jews. And he says, on top of the fact that I can't sleep at night because I've had, I have anxiety because of all of my concern for the churches. And then he says, that's the way that I know that I'm on the right path, because I am now a partaker in my suffering, in the suffering of Jesus Christ as well. And so if you are feeling, you know, in your life that you don't know where life is taking you or the course is leading, if your life has been found faithful to Christ, then one thing you should know is that God is in control of the path that you're taking and that the end destination will be that you will be with him. Now, we don't know the means that we're going to be with him. Some of us may live a long, faithful life to Christ and may pass away in our sleep peacefully. Some of us may end up like Paul. Paul, as he writes to the Philippians, says he knows that he may be poured out as a drink offering. And he tells him, he says. But for me to live is Christ. And for me to die is gain. And that all the bumpy roads that Paul was on. He ends up being beheaded in prison. We're going to see how he ends up getting there. But one of the things that we realize is that the only way he was able to hold faithfully to the path that God had him on is because there was no role, there was no threat, there was no accusation that could made, be made here on earth that would thwart what his eternity said because his eternity had been fixed with Jesus. You may not be able to see that every piece of the puzzle is God directing your steps, but I'm telling you now that the completed image that he is forming in your life will be that at the end of your life, when you stand before him, not only will you see him, you're going to be like him. Last week, Joseph 
doesn't understand what it means to be in the pit until his brothers and his kinsmen need to know how they can survive the famine. And so you have no idea probably all the ways that God is orchestrating your life perfectly so that he will get glory out of it, that all the places that he's taken you. But I guarantee you that if God is going before you, if God is directing and orchestrating your path, he is perfectly able to be God without your intervention. He makes known our end before the beginning. And that's because he's sovereign. And so that tells me that as Job says, we all must declare that he knows the way that we take. So if you're struggling with the way that you're taking, my advice to you is move out of the way and let God be God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. We thank you that you are in control, God. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are orchestrating our our steps and directing our paths and leading us to eternity, God. Lord, we are not in control of what happens. We are not in control of the things that you're going to place before us. Some of the realities, God, that may be the result of our sin and some that are just the result of your divine plan. But in every step, every seeming misstep, you are in control. God, if our lives are found faithful, then you are directing us on a path that eventually lands us in eternity with you. And so, God, if we have to go through something down here. If we go to if we have to go through hell down here to have eternity with you, that's fine. (laughs) I'm good with that. God, whatever may come, whatever may befall any of us. Not only are you using it, but you're using it to conform us and direct us and shape us and purify us and sanctify us and mold us into your image so that at the end of our lives, We're going to look so much more like you than we do right now. And so, God, we don't ask that the path is easy. God, we just ask that you do whatever you want to do to make us like you. God, that's a scary prayer to pray. And probably many of us don't want to pray it. But the reality is, God, is that we ask you to do whatever you're going to do to make us more like Jesus. Whatever it takes, God. Whatever it takes. God, you know all the areas of our lives that we struggle and we know that the path that we're on is to is to purify us from those struggles. God, whether it be the sin of impatience. Whether it be the the feelings of, you know, being abandoned or forsaken, God. Every trial, every tribulation, every step is. Is a way for you to sanctify us through that. God, if there are people who are here who are watching today who do not know that God that is directing their path and they're still having to go through so much yet is not leading them to eternity. God, I pray this will be the day they understand that that you sent Jesus to satisfy the wrath of God. To be the propitiation of our sins, the substitutionary atonement to stand in our place. So that he would endure what we were intended to endure for all of eternity in hell. That's your goodness. 
and that you don't just leave us to ourselves after our salvation, but that you will give us ways and a means of grace to make us look more like you. Lord, we thank you for every obstacle, for every twist, for every turn, for every bump in the road, for every time it feels like we're off course, for every dark path, because you, we know you go before us. And that if we delight in you, you will make our paths clear. Help us see that. Help us know that our steps have been ordered before the foundation of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.